please be seated. I'm going to be reading God's word in a moment, but before we do that, let's ask his help. Lord, if, if we do not have your Holy Spirit with us this morning, then this is all in an empty intellectualism. It'll be of no benefit to our souls. And so we plead, Holy Spirit, come. And we thank you that if earthly parents can give good gifts to their children, how much more will our Father in heaven? So we pray, pour out your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Revelation 2 and 3. It's a unique subset of the book of Revelation, a subgenre that are letters from the Lord Jesus. They were written probably in the last decade or so of the first century, and they were sent to seven churches that made up sort of a horseshoe in an area called Asia Minor. We've already seen three of these letters. These are intensely personal letters showing that Jesus intimately knows the life, the strengths, the weaknesses of his church. But they're not private letters, as if Jesus delivered those secretly to the church and, and others were not to see them. These are uh, uh, to be distributed, so they were to be read to all seven churches, and they were to be read for our benefit today as well. Now, specifically this morning, we're looking at the letter to the church of Thyatira. Now, of all the cities to receive letters, Thyatira was probably the least significant in terms of size and influence. It only had about 25,000 people in population, and yet we're reminded size and influence are not of great importance to the Lord Jesus. In fact, this is the longest of the seven letters. We need to remember that Jesus cares as much about small, remote churches as he does large metropolitan churches. Now, despite its size, Thyatira was known as a center of commerce. If you remember Lydia from Acts chapter 16, we're told that she was from Thyatira and she was known as a seller of purple goods. We have other evidence that it was a trade center. And as a trade center, one thing archaeologists have found, this is helpful background before I read the letter, uh, they found that there were trade guilds in the city. This was sort of an early, a primitive version of trade unions today. And it was imperative for craftsmen and artisans to join these trades guild, trade guilds if they hoped to prosper in their field. Now, that sounds benign. It doesn't sound like a relevant issue spiritually until we realize that to join and participate in these meetings, members had to take part in pagan festivals. And therefore, to attend these, these guild meetings actually involved the worship of idols and other debauchery and immorality. Well, in the midst of that heathen city of Thyatira, God established a small Christian church and with all the churches, as with all the churches, and with us today, the church at Thyatira is trying to figure out how to live as God's holy people in the midst of a wicked world. Listen now to the reading of God's word, Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works. And I will strike uh, her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as, with, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Over the last few weeks, as I said, I've been preaching these letters to the churches in Asia Minor, and over the last few of them, I've started with a sermon title that reads, Letter to a Blank Church. So Smyrna was a suffering church, Pergamum was a drifting church, and this week I was thinking with some help from some friends in this church, I was thinking about options. What would I call this one? Letter to a what? Letter to a modern-day church. Letter to an overly tolerant church. Letter to an inclusive church. I think any of those would have been more than adequate, in part because I'm not sure if anybody other than my mom reads those sermon titles anyways. But the title I settled on was Letter to a Divided Church. I think that captures the essence of what's going on at Thyatira the best. On the one hand, they receive a tremendous commendation from Jesus Christ. In fact, perhaps the highest of commendations about their faith and their endurance and their love. And not only that, he says, you're, you're, it's more than in the beginning. You're increasing in these things. You're going from strength to strength. In other words, in this contingent, in this body, there's a contingent of people who are really godly, warm, welcoming folks who love Jesus. This is, I, I thought of many of you in this congregation when I read that, who not only exhibit faith and love, but are growing in these things. You have greater faith and love than a year ago or even six months ago. And so there are some who are doing well in those things, but all is not well at Thyatira. There's a contingent of people in the church who are, are living in a way and believing things that are contrary to the Christian gospel. And this, in this letter, Jesus is warning them that if they do not repent, a cataclysmic event stands in the not-too-distant future. There's some hard stuff here. I, I wonder, I've, of course, as a pastor, I can't help but put myself in the shoes of the pastor of this church at Thyatira. Everyone, we got a letter from Jesus. Oh, look, he's commending our, our love and our faith and patient endurance. And then you keep going. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. The Lord Jesus is not a man pleaser. He doesn't consult with our likes or tell us what we want to hear. He tells us what we need to hear, and the church at Thyatira needed to hear some hard truths. 
We do as well, beloved. As we get into this text this morning, we're going to look at three things. First, there's a divided church. Second, we're going to peel back the layers and we're going to see that there's a, there are divided hearts. And then we're going to look forward and see that there is a divided destiny. So first, this is a, a divided church. Uh, Thyatira seems to be two churches in one. This godly, mature group who loves to proclaim the gospel and is making disciples. There are few things more beautiful in the world than to see that, people who are committed to the work of the gospel in their church community. But in the same context, there's this other group whom Jesus refers to as Jezebel. We have a lot of young families in this church, and a lot of young families in this church have a lot of young children. A lot of these children have biblical names. We have Noah in this church. We have Anna. We have Jonathan. We have Samuel. We have Elizabeth. We do not have Jezebel. I have never seen a child in the church named Jezebel. We have a couple of pregnant moms here this morning, and if you're thinking of using the name Jezebel for your child, the elders would like to speak with you after the service. That's for good reason. Who was Jezebel? The first record of a Jezebel in Scripture was an Old Testament character. She was the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. She was married to King Ahab of Israel. It's never good news when the leaders of God's people are marrying foreign wives. It always ends badly. In, in the case of Jezebel, she worshipped Baal, and she led her husband, Ahab, in the same idolatry. And as goes the king, often so goes the nation. And so the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, followed suit. Now, as a punishment for her wickedness, Jezebel was eventually pushed out a window, trampled by horses, eaten by dogs. She was a bad lady. When our Lord speaks here of that woman Jezebel at Thyatira, that probably was not the woman's real name. But she was some kind of false prophetess, acting like Jezebel did, who led the people astray into immorality and idolatry. You know, there's always been a lot of speculation about who this Jezebel was. Some say she was a wealthy donor. Maybe that's why she was tolerated. Some say she may have been a relative of the pastor. Others teach that Jezebel wasn't a specific person, but rather was a, a movement, a theological movement that had crept into the church. Well, who Jezebel is isn't really important. What's important is for us to realize that Jezebel and all false teaching is a spiritual danger to the church. It, it, it produces division. Now, of course, she didn't walk around saying, my name is Jezebel, and I'm a false teacher, and I'm here to lead you astray. Satan isn't that foolish. My guess is that whoever this false teacher was actually used very theological language, language that sounded very good on the surface. I, I wonder if it went something like this. Oh, my friends, the gospel has set you free, and therefore you are free to live any way that you want to. Don't worry about law. That's Old Testament. Don't worry about morality. You're saved by grace, not works, and therefore you can do anything you want. This was a, an early form of what we call today antinomianism, teaching that once you are saved, 
You can live any way that you so desire. And so she was leading many at Thyatira on this escapade of self-indulgence rather than a life set apart to the glory of God. Someone like Jezebel has a long list of what we might call adiaphora. Uh, I don't know if you know that word, but it means things that don't really matter, things that are not really spiritually significant. And so there are certain things in the life of our church that we would call adiaphora, things that really don't have great spiritual importance. This lady probably, Jezebel, probably expanded that list so that it incorporated all sorts of things, and she would just say, well, it's really a matter of personal opinion or preference. You know, those trade guilds, you can join their feasts and their sacrifices and, and all the debauchery that goes with them and still serve Jesus. I mean, you've got to be able to provide for your family, right? So it's not a spiritual issue whether you join those trade guilds. Perhaps an equivalent to what Jezebel would be saying in that case would have been, Daniel, you don't need to live like a Jew while you're in Babylon. Go live like the Babylonians. It's no big deal. Now, Jezebel wasn't just about bad living. Now, certainly idolatry and immorality were attached to it, but bad living starts with bad doctrine, bad teaching. The reference in verse 24 to the deep things of Satan probably indicates that Jezebel was teaching something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, it's a, a Greek word meaning knowledge, but it's, it's the idea, it's a heresy that has plagued the early church from, uh, the church from its earliest days. It's the idea that certain people are, rise up to a secret level of knowledge that nobody else really realizes, nobody else really knows, and so everybody else is living in darkness. Even some Christians are living in darkness. They haven't reached that elevation of spiritual maturity. Gnosticism says things like the physical world don't matter. It's the spiritual realm that counts, and so if you know that secret, according to Gnosticism, your mind can be set free, and you're enlightened to know the secret things, and things like those pagan feasts, those don't really matter. The physical world is just an illusion, and it's dirty, it's transitory, And so what you do with your physical body doesn't really matter. You can eat what you want to eat. You can eat food sacrificed to idols. You can can sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. It's just a body. What really matters are the spiritual things. So that's, that's Gnosticism in a nutshell. You know this secret knowledge, and it sets you free. It's easy to see why the result of Jezebel's teaching was a divided church. You know, Satan loves divided churches. You know that, right? He's he's always working. He's always working to divide the church, and and an immature church is going to fall for it. They're going to get bent out of shape, normally over things that are preference matters, and we all think that our preference is the most important thing, don't we? Satan is always trying to divide the church. God loves unity and hates division and those who cause dissension. Now, we do know at times division is necessary. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 11. The church at Corinth had all sorts of divisive issues, and Paul said to them, there must be, there must be divisions among you so that those who are genuine may be known. In other words, it was false faith that was causing divisions at Corinth. God loves unity in the church. 
when it is united around biblical truth. I want to step back for a moment. I want you to see something. A lot of times when we see division in churches, we boil it down to matters of church politics. A lot of divisions are about things like personality and preference. Maybe they're issues of liberal versus conservative, traditional versus contemporary, and so on. What was going on at Thyatira was not a result of church politics. You can't reduce it down to something that simple. The divided church is a result of divided hearts. Divisions in the church are matters of the heart. That's the second thing I want you to see here, divided hearts at Thyatira. I mentioned to you there were a lot of trade guilds in Thyatira. So imagine you're a silversmith. And you join the guild so you can grow your trade. You're a Christian. You go to the guild meetings. You sit around the table for a special meal. You're ready to partake of this great feast with your colleagues. And the host, the leader of the guild, might stand up and say, Welcome. We have quite a feast for you today. But before we partake, let's all turn our attention to the one who made this possible. The goddess Artemis, the patron goddess of silversmiths. Artemis, we see your statue over here in the corner. We raise our glasses to you. We give you thanks. We worship you for providing for us. And then they would eat and they would drink and all sorts of immorality and debauchery ensued. The dilemma in the, at the church at Thyatira was a heart issue. Can a Christian participate in a trade guild? Doesn't sound like a big deal. Well, if he doesn't, he's going to suffer, suffer loss of income. He's going to lose his position in society. And he'll be a total outcast. But if he does, he'll be guilty of idolatry and immorality against God. It was a dilemma for these believers and what it exposed is what the Bible calls a divided heart. I think the best illustration of a divided heart is in Matthew 13, Jesus' parable of the sower. Jesus speaks of a sower who sows seed. There's four different places the seed lands. And the third type was a seed that sprouted up. It grew, but then it got choked out by thorns. Well, Jesus in Matthew 13, 22 explains that. He says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares, remember that word, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That word cares there is really divisions. The divisions in the heart, part of my heart belongs to Jesus, but part of it belongs to wealth and reputation and to all that this world has to offer. You know, another analogy Scripture uses for a divided heart, and our passage uses it, is an adulterous heart. Just as a husband's heart ought to belong fully to his wife and to no other woman, and the wife's heart belongs fully to her husband and to no other man, as Christians, our hearts must belong fully to Jesus Christ and no other gods. No idols. 
That's why in verse 22, Jesus calls the followers, followers of Jezebel those who commit adultery with her. It, it may be talking about literal adultery, but I think it's likely that it's talking about spiritual adultery. Professing to love Christ, but chasing after the world's pleasures. And this was the appeal of Jezebel's teaching. Jezebel says, you can have it all. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can have the security of Christ's grace while indulging yourself on the world's pleasures. Jezebel says you can have it all. And no matter how theologically and seductively she can say it, what she's really saying, what she's propagating, is a divided heart, a heart that is choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. The fact that, well, what we have at, at Thyatira is a contingent of people, and I wonder if we have anyone in this room like this. They don't mind calling themselves Christians as long as it doesn't get in the way of their pursuit of the world. Their hearts don't fully belong to Christ. They want to name Christ as they, their Savior, but they don't desire for it to cost anything to follow him. That's a divided heart. And we need to be aware that there's something really telling that Jesus calls her Jezebel when that was probably not her real name. It's very important for us to realize there will always be Jezebels. Until Jesus returns, there will be Jezebels who will peddle a form of Christianity that says you can profess to be a Christian, but live just like the world. You can name Christ as Savior, but set your heart and your affections upon this world. Beloved, that is an impossibility. That is a divided heart. It's a heart with two visions. It's such an easy sell, though, isn't it? A Christianity that actually indulges the flesh and costs nothing will always be popular. That's what Paul was telling Timothy in 2 Timothy. There are always going to be people with itching ears, and they'll go find teachers to teach them what they want to hear. A Christianity that indulges the flesh and costs nothing will always be popular. Don't you just love Bob? Don't you just love Bob? I hear he's a Christian, but he's not one of those extremists. He'll, he comes to our feasts. He'll eat our meats that have been sacrificed to Artemis. He'll even participate in our rituals. I like his brand of Christianity. He's really one of us, not like those zealots. That's what Jezebel's propagating. Thyatira is in a dangerous place. Their concern for God's glory has been eclipsed by a, personal, a quest for personal happiness. They interpreted the world not in terms of existing for the glory of God, but there were many who thought they exist for their own self-indulgence. You know, what's the difference between a heart that is given to Christ and a heart that is divided between Christ and the world? It's how we answer this question. To whom do I live? Whose will must be done in my life? What is the most important thing? 
as Christians, the answer should be obvious. We say that we have been saved. What does that mean? It means that we have been saved precisely from the very things that Jezebel was promoting. And we are saved to a life of joy in Jesus Christ. But you can't have both. (laughs) You, You can't name the name of Jesus Christ and yet indulge yourself on the world. That's what the Bible calls a divided heart. And we need to understand, if you're a Christian, you're not simply a Christian because you come to church or because you answered a few questions right in the vows or because your parents were Christians. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because the grace of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on you and you have recognized the danger of loving this world and you've turned to Christ in faith and repentance. And the problem at Thyatira and for so many today is that we see Christianity as a means to self-fulfillment and personal happiness rather than a way to live life to the glory of God. Now, of course, as we live life to the glory of God, we actually find happiness and self-fulfillment that the world can't offer. But so often, professing Christians are choosing what the world has to offer, and they will play church as long as it doesn't get in the way. Are we guilty of that? What happens then when Christianity no longer produces temporal happiness is that it's jettisoned for something else that will. Let me give you an example that parents all over America are facing. They want to raise their children in the church. They want want their children to have those benefits, but they also want their children to excel in school and excel in sports and get into good colleges. And so oftentimes, families are so busy running here and there and everywhere, getting their child to this practice, that game. Weeks are incredibly busy pursuing those goals for their children. Athletic teams and leagues realize that as well, how busy things are. The only time open happens to be Sunday mornings. This is going on all over America, by the way. Let's schedule our games on Sunday mornings. And then parents are being faced with a dilemma. Do we have our children in church on Sunday morning or on the ball field? What makes our children happy? More often than not, in my experience, parents are choosing the ball field because we care more about our children's temporal happiness than their eternal holiness. We are in the process teaching them to have divided hearts. Parents, listen to me, please. If you want your children to turn away from the church, if you want them to turn away from true biblical fidelity, here's how you do it. Teach them to give half their heart to Jesus and the other half to the world. Teach them that church is important as long as nothing else is going on. And what you'll do is send them on their way out of the church. The Christian must be aware that there is a part of our hearts that longs for this world. And if we allow our hearts to go down that road, then we will find ourselves loving the world far more than we love the Lord Jesus You know, the prayer of our hearts ought to be the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 86, verse 11. This is a great prayer for you to pray this afternoon, where the psalmist says, Unite my heart 
to fear your name. The psalmist says, my heart's going in a million different directions. Pull them all together that the chief ambition of my life would be the glory of your name. Now, it is interesting. Jesus' rebuke in this passage is not actually a rebuke of Jezebel. Do you notice that? He certainly warns Jezebel, but the rebuke is to the church. Look back at verse 20. This I have against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Jesus is actually rebuking the faithful who are tolerating Jezebel's false teaching. You see, Jezebel's heart problem wasn't the only heart problem at Thyatira. The whole church, it seems, is proving that their hearts are divided because they won't confront the scandal going on before their eyes. And what's happening is more and more people are being led astray. I I wrestled with this a lot this week. What would I do? How would we handle it as a session, as a church, if Jezebel was here? What might cause us to tolerate Jezebel? It may have been that Thyatira, those trade unions were so powerful. And if you got on their bad side, they would hurt the church. But isn't Christ more powerful than the trade unions? Perhaps Jezebel was a wealthy donor. We don't want to alienate our donors, do we? Doesn't Jesus own the cattle on a thousand hills? Perhaps they thought the loving thing to do was to tolerate what she was doing. Now, tolerance is a fascinating topic, isn't it, today? Uh, our world is obsessed with, with, with tolerance, and so many churches are as well. It's sort of seen as the highest of all virtues today. Is tolerance actually a virtue? I think it depends on what we mean by tolerance. In one sense, it is indispensable for the unity of the church that we tolerate one another, that we be patient with each other. That's vital to the church. Tolerating each other's quirky personalities is vital to the church, isn't it? Bearing with one another's frailties and infirmities, that's vital to the church. You can't have a healthy, united church without some degree of that sort of tolerance that is really just patience. It's the gospel in action. There's another sort of tolerance that is an absolute poison to churches, and that's what's causing this division at Thyatira. It's when you tolerate sin and allow it to spread like a cancer to the body. That's where the division's coming from. This false teacher is undermining the word of God and the church is tolerating it. They're not doing anything about it. Jesus never advocates for that sort of tolerance. Do you realize that? What he's saying here is you're allowing a woman like that to hold sway over your people. Why do you tolerate it? Don't affirm it. Don't include her. Don't welcome her. Don't wait and see what happens. You need to correct her, and if she will not repent, get her influence out of the church. Jesus is actually talking here about church discipline. That's what Jesus is saying. The view that so many churches have today of tolerance is a false tolerance. It's rooted in what's oftentimes called inclusivity. You can go on any church website this afternoon. Just look up 10 churches in Beaufort. My guess is eight of them will not tell you one thing about what they believe. Why? 
Because we want to be inclusive. Doctrine divides, they'll say. Love does not ignore sin. Tolerance cannot ignore sin. Christ does not ignore sin. And therefore, a heart that is united in Christ and to Christ must address it. To borrow and change an ancient saying, it's credited to Aristotle, I don't know who it's, if he was the origin of it, but I'm going to change it. Tolerance is the last virtue of a dying church. When you tolerate false teaching and immorality and idolatry, the church will cease to be the church. It's really interesting. Thyatira is a mirror opposite of Ephesus. Do you remember reading about Ephesus? Ephesus, they did really good at weeding out false teaching. Jesus says, you hate the Nicolaitans, and that was actually a, a, a compliment to them. Jesus says, I do too. And he's talking about hating their false teaching. He says, but you've lost your first love. Yes, you deal well with doctrine, but you're harsh and you're unloving. Well, here, Thyatira is just the opposite. They're tolerating sin under the guise of love. Inclusivity. Who's right? Both. And neither. Truth without love is legalism. Love without truth is liberalism. Christ demands that we speak the truth in love. Why? Because everyone in that congregation and everyone in this congregation is going to live forever. But not all will live with Christ in heaven forever. See, what Jesus is saying here is Jezebel and those who follow her are bound for condemnation. So third thing I want you to see here is there's a divided destiny. In these letters, Jesus always identifies himself in a way that's relevant to what's happening in the churches. So for example, the church at Smyrna that's being persecuted even to the point of death, when Jesus identified himself, he says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. What an encouragement that would be to that persecuted church. Look how Jesus identifies himself at Thyatira in verse 18. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Eyes are like a, a flame of fire. It means he sees straight through the mask we wear into our hearts. We are good at fooling each other, aren't we? You cannot possibly fool Jesus Christ. And the wonderful thing of the gospel is that you don't have to. You don't go before Jesus and say, all is well, I've got my life in order, Jesus, I do not need you. The wonderful thing about the gospel is you go to Jesus and say, my life is a train wreck and I desperately need you every moment of every day. We don't have to wear a mask because Jesus has already seen it all. But the Thyatirans, what they're doing, they're professing outwardly to be Christians, but behind the scenes, they're participating in a scandal that brings shame to the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, you may be able to hide the scandal from each other, but you cannot hide it from my eyes. And who is this with whom you're dealing, by the way? Look at verse 18 again, the words of the Son of God. 
Many of the false gods were viewed as sons of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Our Lord is reminding him, them here that all will give account before him. They're not just playing church on Sunday. They're not just building a social group for themselves. God himself is calling them to account. And these lawless Thyatirans need to understand that their immorality and idolatry have provoked the anger of the living God. That's what he says in verse 23. I will give to each of you according to your works. He's saying to those who are participating in idolatry and immorality, I have seen what you do behind the scenes and you will give account. Another way of saying what Jesus is saying here is you can't live like hell and expect heaven. Despite all that Jezebel has done, I want you to see how gracious Jesus is. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent. Let me talk to non-Christians here for a moment. The rest of you are welcome to listen along. Why are you here? I don't mean it for Scots. We could not be happier that you're here. And I hope you're back next Sunday and the following Sunday. Why are you still here on earth? The Lord Jesus has seen everything about you, every thought you've ever had. Me too, by the way. He's seen all my thoughts. He's seen everything I've ever done. The things that if the rest of this room saw them, I would never come back here. He's seen it all, and I deserve to be destroyed on the spot. So why has he left you here? Rather than giving you the punishment you deserve, why did he leave me here rather than giving me the punishment I deserve? This text makes it clear. Just as with Jezebel, he's giving you time for repentance. Listen to what the Bible says about why God is patient with us, why God doesn't strike us down the first time we sin. Romans 2 verse 4. It comes with a, it's a promise that comes with a warning, and it starts with a warning. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? In other words, do you think that because God has tolerated this, he's okay with it? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So to answer that question, why are you here? The reason you're still here is God is giving you time to repent. It's a wonderful message, wonderful reminder that the gospel is free to all. Come, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Come, all who have made a train wreck of your life. and I will welcome you into my kingdom. But entrance into the kingdom is marked by repentance. That's what Jesus says here. I gave her time to repent. Jezebel, even Jezebel could have been forgiven. Would you be forgiven? Do you long to have your sins forgiven? Repent and believe the gospel. That was Jesus' first sermon. That was John the Baptist's first sermon. That's the sermon that's missing from churches that, that dub themselves as inclusive, open, and tolerant. Repent and believe the gospel. 
but don't presume upon his patience because it will come to an end. There will be a time in which it is too late. That's what's happening in verse 22. Jesus says, I've given her time to repent, but she refuses. Behold, I'll throw her onto a sick bed. Maybe some sort of physical illness might mean spiritual. I'm not totally sure. It seems to be that Jesus is saying she's going to die soon. And those who are committing adultery with her, again, I don't think it's physical adultery. Jesus is saying, not only will, will I deal with her, but tribulation is going to come on them as well. And if they do not repent either, then they stand in danger of a damnable destiny. Do you realize Jesus is talking to church members in this passage? He's talking to people like you and me. He will one day come and separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. To some, he will say, enter into the joy of your master. To others, he will say, away from me, I never knew you. Despite her ability to speak fluent Christianese, Jezebel and her followers are unbelievers. And so are all who refuse to submit to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And all will be cut off from him forever and ever. And it is an awful destiny. Not only is that true for individuals, but if churches repeatedly hear the word and ignore it. He'll eventually remove the lampstand from the church. Christ never trifles with sin, and the destiny of persisting in unrepentant sin is a terrifying destiny. But as I said, it's a divided destiny. It's not the only destiny, and the Lord Jesus leaves us with some great words of hope. There was a faithful remnant of believers in Jezebel's day, and there's a faithful remnant at Thyatira. Look at verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works till the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations, and he'll rule them with an, a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star couple of awesome promises here. First, authority over the nations. He's saying here, do you get this? Don't worry about Thyatira. Don't worry about these trade guilds and what they might do to you. Because there's going to be a day where you're no longer going to be a quiet, fringe, marginalized group of people in a small Asian city. Hold firm to the end, and one day you'll rule over all the nations of the earth. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will lose anything by following me, Jesus says. You're going to share in my victory when I come. And then in verse 28, he promises to give them the morning star. What is that? Well, the first rule of biblical interpretation is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Look with me at Revelation 22. Verse 16. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You get what Jesus is saying, right? You get what he's saying? Hold fast and I will give you myself. Hold fast even though it's difficult. Resist the temptation of Jezebel. Accept the reality that you're going to be on the fringes of society. And guess what? I will give you myself. The world will abandon you. I will be at your side. Darkness will surround you. I will be the light. Turn from the world's pursuit of empty pleasures. And what you will find is that at my right hand there are pleasures forevermore. How kind is the Lord Jesus that we who have failed him so often says, I'll give you myself. These trade guilds, what do they say? Participate in what we do, approve of what we do, and we'll approve of you, but if you won't, we will make you suffer. The world has no redemption. Our version of this is cancel culture today. Once you're at odds with the world, there's no redemption. But what about those of us who have failed miserably who have sinned and come to Jesus again and again and again in faith and repentance. He says, I'll give you the morning star. I'll give you myself without reserve. I will give you myself in abundance. Our worst moments as Christians are when we lose sight of that. That's when we are so vulnerable to Jezebel, when Jesus is not enough for us and we start longing for the things of this world. That's when the Christian is not only most vulnerable, but most miserable, and we lose our spiritual bearings. Jesus says, hold fast to me. I'll be your morning star. I'll guide you. Seek me, and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. It's true for us individually. It's true for us as a church. Do we want to be a united church? We have to be united in our vision of what we seek. Are we seeking greater numbers? More programs, bigger facilities, all of those things will lead to division. True unity happens when we, as one body, cherish more than anything Jesus Christ and make it our chief aim to seek him and to enjoy him with all our hearts. How do we apply this text? Let me give you a couple applications. First, and this one should be obvious. There are always going to be, until Jesus returns, Jezebel's in the church. Who will tempt us to set our hearts upon this world rather than the world to come? Just to be clear, yes, it, it's happening today sexual immorality, the justification of pornography, the justification of homosexuality, all those things. Jezebel reappears and appears and appears, and she will in a hundred years, in two hundred years, in a thousand years if Jesus tarries. But let me be clear on this. There will never be any justification for idolatry or willful sexual sin. No matter how well Jezebel may encapsulate it with rich-sounding theological language, there are no loopholes that will ever make idolatry or sexual immorality acceptable before the living God. No matter how much that might make us feel better. If you want to really feel better, 
And this is a word especially to those who may be indulging in secret sexual sin. The only way to, we'll say, feel better from it is to repent and run to the Lord Jesus and cling to him only. Second, Jesus never calls the church to hide scandal. You watch the news and you see scandal after scandal in the church, things that have been covered over, that have been hidden. Oftentimes, to enable the perpetrator, sometimes claim to be for the glory of Jesus in the world. Whatever it is, when it is rampant sexual immorality, when it is rampant sin against the glory of Jesus Christ, it must be exposed and it must be dealt with through church discipline. Scandals always have victims. You know that, right? And do you know who the first victim of every scandal in the church is? It's Jesus Christ. So the church must be diligent to promote and preserve his name and deal with anything that scandalizes the glory of Christ. Finally, let's labor. Let's work really, really hard to be a united church. Churches can unite around many things, service projects, social justice, common enemies. They can unite around all sorts of things. That's false unity. Real unity centers when a body of people have a shared passion for Jesus Christ. When we have internalized that he is the morning star who gives himself to us and we come together and we say what we desire individually and what we desire corporately is to know Jesus Christ and make him known. Real gospel unity pleases Christ. We saw that in Psalm 133. Behold how good a thing it is when brothers dwell in unity. Jesus prayed for that kind of unity in John 17. The New Testament epistles teach us how to preserve unity. We need to understand God does not take lightly to those who disrupt unity, and we shouldn't either. If we desire to promote unity, it must be unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's your role in that? Same as mine, to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, that everything else would become secondary in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your word, how it teaches us, how it instructs us. We thank you for the amazing promises of this word. The promises of judgment are what we need to hear. The call to discipline is what we need to hear. But the promise that Jesus gives himself to all who hold fast that's really what our hearts crave. Father, confirm that promise in our hearts so that when the world, the flesh, and the devil 